Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Character Reveal. It's that show where we reveal people's character through lovely conversation. As always, I am your host, Dom, aka Brother Dom, all around the internet. Now I'm joined once again by my regal co-host. Would you love to tell the people who you are? Hello all, it is yet again I, Stephanie, aka Captain Steph on Twitter, the Snow Queer on Tumblr, and we are joined, as always, by an awesome guest this week. Um, Brian, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everybody, uh, my name is Brian Wolf, and I am a comic artist and tabletop game designer. Comic artist and tabletop game designer. So that's, uh, those are pretty cool things already. I'm not sure if we've had a ton of board game discussion yet in this show, so that's going to be a that's going to be a pretty cool thing to jump into. Uh, do you want to tell the people a little bit um, what kind of board games you design? Like, really, what your whole style is with that? Uh, sure. So, uh, my most recent project has been a game called Tiny Sword Smash. Uh, it's a spinoff of my first card game, which was a pocket-sized sword fighter called Tiny Swords. Um, this new one, I uh, kind of started out as a strategic spinoff, uh, kind of a riff on old Final Fantasy games. Um, but it ended up kind of morphing into this Smash Brothers style strategy game. Uh, and the, my favorite thing about this, the thing that I love telling people, is the way that the game ended up developing is this game where uh, the sort of the ultimate way that I've played with it is the special tablecloth that I designed for the game where your entire table becomes the board itself. So you're literally using your pieces uh, to move across this special tablecloth grid and push your friend's pieces off the table edge. That's awesome. So it's kind of, it's kind of an intersection between gameplay elements and your physical space. So that's that's super interesting. <laughs> Plus grids make everything a little bit more organized. <laughs> so, you know, before we jump into all this stuff, Brian, how how are you doing today? You know, we just I'm doing kind really of well. Yeah, I'm uh I'm I'm uh, just getting a bunch of stuff together for uh uh, for the uh, well, I will be working on the Kickstarter at this point. I'm flying out to Toronto next week, and I'm getting just a bunch of things in line. Uh, but I've actually also been working on like some smaller projects, so I'm kind of keeping my eye on the ball and one eye on this project, and then kind of one eye on uh, stuff to work on for the rest of 2017. Oh, very nice, very nice. So um, I've seen your art and kind of on Tiny Swords, and also your comics artists, uh, your art and other illustrations, and you have a very, I'd say, cute style. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Thanks. Well, uh, cute is definitely something that I have an extreme fondness of. Uh, so it's definitely something that, you know, for Tiny Sword specifically, I ended up kind of drawing on a lot of things that I particularly enjoyed about, uh, like, aesthetics and, uh, like, games and uh, other, like, kind of themes from, like, things that I enjoyed as a kid. Uh, so with Tiny Swords, the original aesthetics, the first four aesthetics that I made for the game uh, in the game, each sword is themed after a different kind of flavor. So there's a spooky sword, a moon-flavored sword that's all kind of magical and space-themed. Uh, there's a sweet sword that's all desserts, and a mermaid sword, which is like sea creatures and coral reef and other stuff. Um, so like with things like that, like I was like, so the spooky one was the first one I designed because I was a huge Tim Burton fan, actually. So it's sort of this fun thing where I love combining uh, cute and creepy things as well so it has like these little bat wings and skulls <laughs> and like a little haunted house uh, and then you know I can take those uh, aesthetics and kind of uh, run with it in different ways so you know I have a spooky sword and then I can kind of take those aesthetics and turn it into uh, I made characters based off of the sword so then it was a, an interesting design challenge to make a sword fighter 
became this character named Polly Geist uh, because I'm a huge <laughs> big fan of puns. Thank uh, you. So, puns are awesome. Uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, that's the thing that I really enjoy approaching with a lot of the work that I do. Ah, very cool. I like that. Um, so what kind of, or maybe some of your influences? I'm going to assume oh, maybe some Smash Bros, possibly? I um, for that's for this specific game, definitely. Uh, in general, like I was, it's kind of funny because I, on the one hand, Nintendo was a big influence for me, but I actually didn't grow up with a lot of Nintendo consoles. Um, my first console was a Game Boy, but I actually didn't own any other uh, game consoles even until much later. Uh, so it was actually my babysitter and her brother uh, who were massive nerds, and they were really the ones that got me seriously into video games. That these two were. You know, they were, like, in their 20s when I was, like, a itty-bitty babe. Uh, but they had, like, this gigantic Ziploc of, like, Game Boy games. They had, like, Super Nintendo, and, uh, like, uh, they had, like, a Dreamcast that they got on launch day. They played EverQuest together. They had an N64. So, like, most times that I was hanging out with them, I was just, like, sucked into, uh, like, Zelda or Mario or Bomberman 64 or, like, any of these other things. And so I got, like, these little tastes of, like this like really excellent like poppy design aesthetic and because I was playing mainly on PC like the most games I could get on those were actually like just like weird little like licensed mascot games or whatever <laughs> or like movie like, games based on movies or whatever um but like the the way that I ended up getting into games because of that it just kind of led me into this uh, realm of games that were very much outside kind of what I would consider sort of the established canon i guess like the way that like a lot of gamers talk about like oh like i grew up with like super mario world and like mario 64 and i, I kind of did but it was really from a distance and really the games that i like was sucked into uh were like man i was really into like uh point and click adventure games uh because my okay. uh, babysitters had a bunch of those so like i loved and i loved stories so like anything that was like telling interesting story or creating interesting world or, like, uh, just playing around with, like, really bizarre mechanics. The Game Boy was, like, really interesting for me because, like, I could just, like, sample all these, like, weird things. Like, uh, I don't know if you've <laughs> ever heard of uh, The Legend of the River King. I have not. So this is, like, just, like, one of the things that I was, like, obsessed with as a kid, at least conceptually, because this was a fishing RPG. And oh. <laughs> yeah, so literally like it's like, you know, kind of same setup where you like go from town to town, there's like harder challenges, there's like a little bit of a story, but really it's fishing challenges. Like it's like real time kind of arcadey fishing, but like still idea where you're like going to new towns and getting new equipment and going to different rivers to like catch different fish. But it was like it was that and all these other games that I was like digging into that I really got obsessed with like weird and interesting mechanics and like I was into cutesy platformers, but I, I really loved also, like, just digging into the weirder side of games. Uh, oh, that's really solid. Like, the, the River King, by the way, by the way, the thing that I love about this is that there's, like, been only, like, one or two games released in America, but that series is actually run on for, like, I want to say, like, eight or nine games. Like, it's a huge series in <laughs> Japan. Like, it's been around for a long time, and it's kind of one of those things, like, for me, is, like, the magic of the medium. Like, you know, you can make a game about anything. Yeah, you definitely can make a game with any kind of mechanics uh when you mentioned licensed games that made me just think of this old computer game i had that was pretty much just like one of those weird mini game sets but it was from the first Rugrats movie so there was this challenge where you had, <laughs> oh, to, like, yeah, na yeah. <laughs> you had to navigate the river with like a modified version of the reptar wagon and 
when I was little, I was like, this is the coolest thing in the entire world. So <laughs> it's, it's nice to see the weird ways they try to shoehorn licenses into gameplay, but it can be fun for their target demographic. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting for me, too, because, like, there's been, you know, like, at, certainly at that point, licensed games had kind of a bad rep, and it's been interesting to see, even in board games, uh, the things that people are doing now with uh, licenses that kind of actually use the original uh, property, the, the story and the characters and the setting and tone in really interesting ways to create new mechanics that wouldn't exist otherwise. That's That's kind of my real interest in design like i don't know if you heard about the uh, the terminator board game that was on kickstarter recently I've, mm-hmm. i have not so get this because this is the thing that i like find utterly fascinating is <laughs> the idea is that it's an asymmetrical multiplayer game so you have one person playing as the machines one as the humans uh, but you literally have two different boards that you're playing on one in the past and one in the future so literally your characters you're sending characters back into the past to try and alter events on the past board in order to affect and change the future board that's that's that incredibly <laughs> difficult and interesting like difficult right? to like, grasp I, i've never even heard of a game like i've heard of games like kind of play with like time travel and other stuff but like something where like you sort of have these two parallel planes like that is like a super fascinating concept you know whether or not like it ends up being, you know, uh, balanced or, you know, at least as long as it's like trying to do something new and interesting and pushing to new territory. That's something that I really value as a creator. Yeah, I played a, a card game and that I won't say the name because I don't want to slam the people. I, I, I didn't I don't think it's that great, even though I really liked it. Um, hmm. But I only played it about two or three times with friends. And I thought it was a super interesting idea that needs a little bit of tweaking, maybe some extra cards thrown in. But I was like, I'm definitely glad that I helped kickstart this idea. So this person keeps making games kind of thing. So interesting over perfectly polished, I think, is a gamble worth taking. Um, for your for your game, so are there, besides just trying to push the other characters off the board, what kind of mechanics are involved with it? Um, so if you like, I can kind of talk about how the game developed, because I think that kind of shows how the priorities of the game shifted. Um, So originally this game was meant to be sort of a micro card game. So the original Tiny Swords was uh, sort of a rock, paper, scissors card fight. Uh, Each player has six cards, three of these rock, paper, and scissors type cards, and three of their sword cards, which make up their hilt and blade and charm. Uh, Charm being uh, like a special power and the blades and hilts getting extra rock and paper, scissors icons. So you're playing a little bit of a mind game with your opponent in order to use those cards to Uh, attack each other's hands and dismantle sword parts and win the game. So I wanted to take kind of that same feel and some of the similar structure and then plant that into a different genre. Um, So the original strategy idea that I was playing around with uh, was this idea called Tiny Swords Tactics. And the idea was that it was like a Final Fantasy style lineup where you had six cards that had little monsters, each themed after different like swords from the game. So you had little like mermaid themed monsters and spooky monsters, and you would line them up in a row uh, but one of those would be your commander, this like special cool captain that like you could lift up and reveal and have special extra powers, kind of like the charms. And you would shift the line back and forth. So, like so the cards had like arrows that showed which way a character could attack. So you could like strategically plant them and put them down face down. So the, uh, the opponent doesn't know which one you're attacking or where. And, and that, there was some interesting stuff going on with that. But it was this thing where uh, I was actually playing around with other uh, modes because another thing that I really like as a game designer is uh, sort of the idea of total conversion or like having flexible game styles. 
uh, so with Tiny Swords, the first card game, I made, uh, you know, a bunch of different game modes, including one that was sort of this uh, madcap strategy game that actually turns the cards into, like, its own little board of, like, uh, sword collecting and kind of has, like, a, like a sort of turns them into hex strategy tiles. It's a little hard to describe uh, without pictures, but that kind of stuff that I was, like, playing around with. And so I had this idea, well, what if uh, instead of just having this rigid line, I could have a thing that would allow for more than two players to play at a time, and I could have it as sort of this, like, square grid. And, well, how would I do that? Well, like, I start playing around with the idea instead of a grid, then I have the squares, like, moving around and setting up boxes, but they have to, like, stay connected. And there was some interesting stuff going on with that, and uh, as the game kind of continued, it became sort of this riff on, like, uh, I don't know if you remember, did you ever play uh, Final Fantasy Nine or even Eight? I I touched it a tiny bit. I think I've seen some <laughs> gameplay of it. Okay, so there's a, a mini game in both of those, uh, Tetra Masters in one and Tetra, uh, what is it, Triple Triad in the other? It's like a little card game, uh, the idea being, uh, so I ended up kind of riffing on this particular mini game, wherein uh, in, in those, in Triple Triad and Tetra Master, you have these little cards with arrows pointing in like six uh, different directions. Uh, so you lay these cards down and it allows you to convert cards to your side. Uh, so I was just taking this idea of like using cards with arrows and pointing in different spaces in order to like uh, create uh, this sort of expanding and sort of like continually like contracting field. So every time you left it up cards, you would have to shove cards closer together so you would have this uh, escalating sense of like chaos as the battle, like as characters got taken away, the battle would actually get tighter and tighter until like there was only like one player left. Um, but what people were interested in was actually like I found out that people were actually most interested in actually playing uh, and pushing characters away and pushing them off the table edge. <laughs> uh, because I was interested in this idea of like having the, the table itself be a part of the game space. And that was really where I kind of got what really made this game interesting. Uh, and so the more the game went on, like the more that that became the focus. Uh, and then it was really like a, a friend of mine, Kevin John, who's also an excellent game designer and programmer, uh, who was the one who really kind of made the connection uh, actually while uh, right after we had uh, played a bunch of Super Smash Brothers. Uh, that was just like, you know, like, this this really is like a Smash Brothers style game. You should just, like, make that the focus. So before, it was, like, this idea where you attack monsters and they die off and, you know, they kind of disappear and it's not... It, it was there, but it wasn't quite as interesting. Um, but this this thing where, like, tiles now were being shoved around and had damage counters and it, it was a much more kinetic kind of game because in this most recent version, the final version of what's now Tiny Sword Smash... Uh, any tile that moves when it's face up gets to push any other face up tiles in their way. So it's a little bit of um, like block sliding puzzles or like um, I'm trying to think of like specific titles, but you know, those kinds of little puzzle games where you have like little blocks that you're like pushing around and you're trying to move them into like a, like a, not a Sudoku, but it's like a kind of thing like Sokoban, that's it. Yeah. Oh, like those, those things you'd get like in a, like a Cracker Jack box or sometimes like a Happy Meal kind of thing. Uh, I was thinking, I'm not sure if those are the specific ones, but I'm thinking of like, uh, well, I guess for another video game example, like in uh, like the older like Pokemon games where you'd have like little ice cave challenges and you'd have to like move blocks around to like get through a dungeon or something like push oh, blocks okay. out of the, or like a Zelda thing where you like uh, push a block to like move it onto a switch or like push other blocks out of the way. Uh, oh, same okay. idea, that kind of stuff. Uh, just this sort of thing that kind of felt like a natural uh, it felt like a natural mechanic to add to the game, but still kind of drew from a different space and something that I hadn't seen. Like, I've seen a lot of tile-laying games, so like Carcassonne and uh, 
I'm trying to think of some other like big popular examples, but the idea is, you know, like you put those tiles down, but they stay there for the whole game basically. Um, but in this, the tiles are constantly moving around and you have this ability to a certain extent of creating walls by flipping your tiles face down and like preventing other players from moving in certain directions. But that, that challenge, uh, the control is mo moderately limited. And so this, this mechanic really became what was most interesting was uh, really embracing that kind of like strategic chaos. Uh, because uh, yes, the grid does make things a lot more manageable, uh, which is actually great because it helps counterbalance this like constantly changing battlefield uh, yeah. and like has like a way for people to clearly kind of understand the stakes. Solid, kind of gives them scaling. Uh, one thing I like about uh, the story you, you just tell is that you know, playing with other designers kind of informed you about what players seem to kind of find the most fun about different aspects of your game. So that's always, it's nice to see that collaboration is, is what I'm getting at. Definitely. And that's, I think the most important thing for me as an artist is, you know, it's fun for me to make stuff just for the sake of making it, but really I want other people to, to see those things. I really want to make things that other people enjoy. And when I put them in front of people, that's really where I feel that it really gets interesting uh, and part of this is that i actually grew up doing stage theater so for me a lot of creation is kind of inherently in this uh, connection between the artist and the audience this idea that when i'm making a thing i am basically making it for a person and as they're responding then that informs how i make the thing you know if, if i had been making mm -hmm. this game and like i had had people like say i don't know like if they had been interested in like the uh you know, killing off characters, but then like wanted to push in a different direction, then uh, that would probably would have changed uh, how the game played. Uh, just because like, you know, when I'm making a thing, I want to see what uh, people are interested in. And I think this is true to a certain extent for a lot of artists, you know, uh, when you're writing a story and people really respond to a character that up until that point, you just kind of had relegated to the background and you think, well, okay, like this is a character I enjoy, this is a character people enjoy, so now I can kind of bring him into the limelight. It feels the same way to me of like paying attention to what the audience is really responding to and kind of working with them and kind of the two of you leading each other into unknown territory. Yeah, I kind of like that. It kind of has shades of improv to an extent, but I'm really into comedy. So that kind of, uh, that reminds me of the way that comedians kind of interact with their stages to know which way to take a certain bit or something along those lines. Hmm. And I think that's true even for uh, like scripted theater, you know, for a certain extent, yes, stuff is going to be planned out, but you're still wanting to respond to the audience, you know, even if it's just like looking in their direction or making eye contact, depending on the, uh, like the scenes that you're doing, or even, uh, you know, if the audience gives you an opportunity to add something to the scripts, like even in sort of the most rigid kind of forms, uh, I feel like theater has like a lot of flexibility, which is uh, something I feel very strongly about, which is that you know there's a lot of discussion right now in video games about like uh cinema basically cinematic games and this idea of like ultimate storytelling even in, in vr as well has this thing um but really i think theater has a lot more to offer in terms of what games and virtual reality can learn given that you know basically the challenges that these media are encountering now are things that stage theater has been encountering for hundreds of years um I mean, such as what? Do you mean like the where people don't see it as a legitimate storytelling mode, or uh, more of that like this the unique challenges of the medium? Uh, so, as an example, like uh, with VR, like I, I was in a discussion actually recently 
uh, where a couple filmmakers were kind of having the concerns or at least you know wanting to pose the question of like well like what happens if the audience isn't looking the way that we want to they're not looking at the right thing and you know yes that is unusual for a film perspective but that that's literally any stage production like you like you can't force an audience to like look at hamlet when he's talking on stage if there's something more interesting elsewhere so this is a challenge that stage theater has had hundreds of years to uh solve basically and solve in very different interesting ways you know it's not that there's a single solution it's that they provide a multitude of solutions uh that you can draw from and games as well like i I think as far as a medium as a whole have a lot more common with theater because in the same way a game can be extremely scripted extremely linear but it's still ultimately dependent on some kind of reactive relationship between the artist and the audience even if it's just the artist the audience pushing the buttons at the right time uh you know going down this pathway or this one basically the uh, audience as an actor, an extremely uh, ill-prepared actor, <laughs> you know, an actor that keeps forgetting their lines and looking in the wrong direction and tripping themselves over and over again. But still, their idea is that uh, they are an actor in the story. Uh, they are still having some kind of impact uh, on their particular unique experience. And uh, there's been a lot of experience, uh, kind of interesting experiments in uh, in live uh, productions as well that I found really interesting. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Sleep is no, Sleep No More. Uh, so Sleep No More is a really fascinating thing. Uh, this, I want to say, like, two-story warehouse that they've got going on. They have this fake house inside. This is in, like, New York. Um, but the idea is that they have groups that go in. Uh, this house is just filled with rooms that you can wander through. Uh, and there are actors that are uh, performing different monologues and roles uh, throughout, and they're basically sort of creating these kind of looping scenes that players can walk through. Uh, but the idea is that this whole house, this whole production is, I think it's supposed to be a retelling of Macbeth or mm-hmm. another Shakespeare play. So you get this complete story, but you also have a lot of uh, interaction and uh, so the audience basically has a lot of control over what they see, where they see. They're allowed to like open up drawers and like look at bookshelves if they're like in the right room at the right time like an actor can pull them into a different spot for an entirely secret optional scene (laughs) that's awesome Hmm. that is an interesting storytelling method that's really cool (laughs) yeah it's it's fascinating (laughs) yeah sleep no more that's uh and and there's stuff like that but like that particular one is you know extremely extravagant uh iteration of the idea but this is like a lot of the same stuff that games have been exploring i mean in a lot of in a lot of ways like that itself is kind of the same structure that like gone home works with uh, that tacoma looks like it's going to be working with uh, from the same studio um and you know the gone home and tacoma people also were uh developers on bioshock which itself you know yes in between these like gunplay segments are still having the same kinds of uh storytelling and level design in fact it was really interesting for me that gone home uh, you know, has completely different subject matter, completely different tone, but the level designers were still approaching the stages and designing them in the same way that they had developed Bioshock stages. I think that's that is a common that is a through line because no matter if you want to consider it quote unquote uh, a walking simulator or if you want to call it the first person massacre of the of the year, it still comes down to yeah you're going to run around, but there's going to be a point where you have to get some kind of story where the whole point of it is to tell this great narrative. Or to give you a motivation. Um, you know, I've been listening to some podcasts and they were talking about a similar thing that, yeah, granted, you wouldn't say that Mario or even Halo or any of the Call of Duties have these fantastic stories, but you wouldn't be able to market these games as just, oh, 
guide your red pixel through all these brown pixels and stop the green pixel from being with the pink pixel. Like, nobody would play that game. But you're like, oh, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a plumber that's going to go save a princess. And mm-hmm. despite the fact that, you know, essays and essays have been written about how it's problematic, um, it still is a story. It's secondary, but I think it gets people off the couch a little bit more than just saying, go from point A to point B on loop. Yeah, that context, I think, is the key thing. You know, it's, I guess, I feel like a little bit different from other folks that talk about, like, the necessity of story in games, which is, uh, I'm interested, I'm very much interested in, like, direct storytelling methods, um, as far as, like, kind of traditional linear, uh, like, narrative matters, but I'm also very interested in uh, mechanical story engines, the idea of, like, uh, something like a Dwarf Fortress or Minecraft that just sort of presents a lot of interesting mechanics that bounce off of each other to create uh, really compelling narratives. Um, but in that same way, like, all of those still in- inherently have some kind of design amongst them, and it really is just this thing where, like, games, much like any other media, have a, a great capacity for storytelling because humans are extremely wired for storytelling. Like, and this is, you know, not a necessity that it needs to be, like, a novel, uh, like, in the same way. But, like, the, the just expanding the medium and exploring all kinds of different uh, ways is really important to me. Like, uh, you know, even in a more abstract ways as well. Like, I, I don't know, are you too familiar with Res? The uh, music game? Yes, yes. So I've seen a little <laughs> bit of it. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't got a chance to play it yet, but I do know there's a VR version of it that apparently is heavenly. Yeah, and, um, you know, if you've got, like, a Xbox 360, I think. I think they even have the Xbox One now. There's an HD version that you can play with a controller. It's Honestly, it's one of my favorite games ever. Like, that, that kind of, like you know, not a whole lot, there's very barely any narrative at all and that kind of thing. But, you know, in that sense, then it's more like an, an album where it's an, an emotional narrative. You're kind of going through this, like, just sights and sounds and colors and pulsing in time of the music and really excellent music too. Um, but there's a lot to that also that, like, just really resonates with me. Uh, Sounds and, right up your and I'm really down. interested. Yeah, <laughs> that's to- that's totally a thing I do want to see. It's I-, I like the way you put that. Is that it's more of like an emotional narrative? Um, that sounds really artsy, uh, but I <laughs> I agree. I think that's the perfect way to put some of these things. Is that y- you wouldn't describe the plot of Res, but you could describe the the narrative of it. I think that's really good. That's a good thing to say. And I think that's true of a lot of more abstract games. Is that really the appeal of it? Isn't you know, like uh, where nobody's really re- playing a Mario game for a complex plot or even any kind of plot at all. It's the emotional narrative of that of the mechanics themselves. Uh, you know, whether that is something like uh, classic Mario that's single player focused and just kind of very extremely tricky, uh, like coordination and uh, skill, or else like a multiplayer game that kind of throws your friends together and uh, causes this kind of like slapstick uh, scenario. Um, you know, but maybe that's a little bit broad as far as like anything making a story you know because humans are very good at creating stories out of nothing um but i think that's fascinating to think about as a designer i i I think you see that a lot in board games too to i mean to bring it back into your Mm -hmm. wheelhouse um even like those old you know milton bradley games or hasbro or whatever it is you take a game like trouble that they put a narrative to and it really just is you popping the little thing to bounce and then you step around the board it's not like this 
there's not inherently a narrative there, they just kind of applied one. Mm-hmm. And really, uh, the thing that I think video games and board games have in common that, that really makes the difference is that part of the reason that it can get away with that kind of abstraction is because it is that direct involvement. Like, if you're watching a video of somebody else play, it wouldn't necessarily be that interesting. Um, but it's because people are doing it, uh, and specifically people that you know and are, are emotionally invested in, that makes the difference. So, you know, it's, you know, like, it's the same reason I, I feel that, like, games have, as a medium, are able to get away with less interesting or well-crafted narratives. It's because, like, the involvement is immediate and that really kind of, uh, it, it gives, not necessarily a couch that sounds a little bit too negative, um, but there is something in that that uh, sort of uh, is sort of cuts to the point, uh, kind of circumvents this kind of typical uh, problems that a static medium tries to do where they have, you know, like there's the common thing in like uh, media media for a long, long time of this like everyman hero that's supposed to be your projected character. But, you know, like there's not really any reason to have that except to supposedly like create this like blank slate connection. Uh, Whereas, you know, a game could have that but really any character that they're doing you know you're inhabiting that character like you have an immediate emotional investment because you are personally responsible for that character you're using it to interact with the world yeah i think i mean that's that's an that's an excellent point i think it is worth um kind of thinking about these rather than trying to figure out if there is an explicit narrative is is following down this path of you know not needing the everyman but getting uh, i guess kind of your story from the story you can tell from it. Um, are you familiar with Super Hexagon at all? I am, yeah. Yeah, fun little game. Um, and you know, anytime I play a game for and I get like mildly obsessed with it, I always gotta go to TV tropes and see what was said. Um, <laughs> but there was like a little fan theory going around trying to figure out what the game is about. I'm like, the, mm. the game's about beating the three modes and beating them again until you get your high score. That's that's the point of the game. But some people were saying. <laughs> like oh no it's about like being born you know like as you you go through the colors and it looks like you're just going deeper and deeper or or further and further out and then once you beat hexagonist or super hexa whatever the last mode is Mm -hmm. the screen just stops and you just go on this little color trip where you see all these different patterns either in reverse or or something and people Mm -hmm. are like oh man that's totally like a metaphor for either dying or being born and i'm like you are maybe the creator did that but there was a lot of projection onto what amounted to a triangle going around a hexagon-shaped plane trying to not hit walls. Um, and that's kind of amazing. Yeah, but that is, uh, you know, just to put that in historical context, like, that is kind of the same thing that, like, uh, you know, if uh, I'm trying to think of, like, a good artist to pull from uh, all in my head, but, uh, you know, like a Paul Clay or... Uh, like any any really any abstract painter you know this idea of uh, like or a Rothko even like those are just like colored squares but there's so much like context that people either you know project or find or uh, you know or the artist imbues in that intentionally uh, and I think that's a really fascinating thing you know so it's a thing where you know there is a lot of like you know kind of jokey like you know the the jokes about like oh well Mario is like a uh like a Marxist propaganda or like, um, you know, that, well, Katamari Damashi is actually supposed to be like a condemnation of capitalism. That actually is a thing that Keita Takahashi, the designer actually did like explicitly, uh, like announce, uh, since it's supposed to be about like collecting junk and getting rid of it and, uh, just kind of showing like wasteful materialism, but like, you know, the, the, the things that people can find in a work, in a text, like I think are, 
uh, really interesting. And it's it, that kind of discussion, I think, is always fascinating to see both what people bring to the table and what people can pull out of the work itself, uh, you know, and how much is A or B, like, certainly is interesting. Um, about the characters, though, I, I wanted to point out uh, another example that I thought was really fascinating, um, which, uh, have you had a chance to play Night in the Woods yet? I have not. Um, I, I, I just I've saw so, so many... <laughs> Yeah, I saw so many people being on and on about it. I'm like, so instantly I went into hipster mode, but then I saw the art and I'm like, hipster facade broken. This is up my alley. Um, Don't have I started a type. to read. A, I, I have such a type of art; it's 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 ridiculous. Um, but then I I kind of read a little bit more about it, and I was like, I can't play this game because I think I have too strong of a connection to it. Because it kind of seems to be, and maybe it's because its creator bombs fall on Twitter. Their location mm-hmm. right now is in Pittsburgh, and I'm like, oh, this does kind of seem like an old depressed coal miner town. I I can't do this right now, because um, <laughs> I'm I'm also from like the Pittsburgh area, and and I've in all the stories that they're telling about, I think her name is is it May? Yes. Yeah. yeah, they're like, oh, she's kind of going back home after not doing so great in college, and I'm like, nope, 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 I can't. <laughs> is t- too real, too relatable. T- too too <laughs> real. <laughs> too close to home right now. Um, but yeah, what was uh, what was your point on it though? It, it does look <laughs> does look amazing. Um, one, I, I would highly recommend it. It's really excellent, and especially if you're from the area, I think it's pretty fascinating because I've uh, mostly uh, I've just heard a lot about Scott Benson talking about kind of like uh, sort of the feel and flavor of like his own hometowns and like childhood growing up that he like imbued. Um, so like uh, I, I guess Sheets is a thing as like a convenience grocery store. So there's like a grocery <laughs> yes, <it> store. Is. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a grocery store in in the town of Night in the Woods that is specifically like a parody of that. There's uh, like two characters are obsessed with the local football team, which is the uh, uh, the Smelters, which is meant to be a parody <laughs> of the Steelers, right? Oh, uh, but it's the thing like that that flavor of like local town, like you know, it still feels like like I can see stuff of that because I grew up in Kentucky, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, um, oh, but nice. I still know friends who live kind of more in rural areas and. Uh, like I got to know more kids who grew up in like Appalachian, Kentucky. So I have a little bit of that experience. I can still feel like I get where they're coming from. Um, but there's still like these specific details that make it really interesting. And specifically kind of what I was talking about with May is that you're inhabiting a character that is, you are a part of that character, but they also are distinct from you, um, which is interesting because like there's a lot of opportunities for you as a player to decide May's responses, but the range of May's responses are within a specific range for her emotional narrative arc. So like at the beginning, or depending on kind of what part of the narrative you're in, you know, like, like this isn't much of a spoiler, but I'll give an example that I thought was hysterical, um, which is that you are uh, at this party and you're not, like your character is like, May is like, embarrassed to like see an old ex of hers and she like decides to get drunk because she can't handle that um and oh, she ends up being real. completely <laughs> wasted and gets driven home by this best friend of hers who they've got like some history like just like they're trying to like get back in sort of um but you basically have this like great uh, dichotomy between like having these like uh answers that you can give and may's actual responses like there's like this extremely eloquent <laughs> like i'm really sorry about this uh like about uh like saying this wrong thing and like 
uh, like you mean so much to me, and like you choose that and it comes out as made, like just blubbering, like, I'm so sorry, just, just, like just completely <laughs> incoherent gibberish. And like in a similar way, like there's a lot of times where May has basically the options between one or two incredibly mean lines, and you as a player might not necessarily want to answer because you know that's wrong. But the, the important thing is that you are not you, you are basically guiding May on this particular journey, and it's not your place basically to choose the best answer necessarily um it's a really interesting kind of tweak on like role-playing i guess because you know i compare this with the design of like bioware games where uh you know in mass effect your character is essentially a clean slate you know that is very much a character where you are molding them into the person you want them to be so you always have the option of saying something like heroic or snarky or kind of in this and you have sort of these set uh like kind of guidelines for that that arc um because you are basically deciding which way the narrative goes whereas the sort of we have the opposite here in night in the woods where may has her own set arc that has already been kind of decided and it's really more about you kind of uh, molding that to your own taste and kind of in the middle of that i would say uh would be kind of like telltales like a series of adventure games like the walking dead is similar thing where uh, like Lee, for example, in season one has his own distinct arc and that the broad strokes are still going to happen in the same ways. Um, but the way that Lee reacts can vary a lot more depending on choices that you make even before the moments that Lee reacts. So there's things where they remember like, oh, well, you said something that angered this other character. So even if we don't give you the option, they're going to immediately automatically act a certain way because that makes sense from the narrative that you've been building. Uh that is pretty interesting. That um, that that reminds me back uh, a few years ago, just to to bring it back from the long goes. Uh, Depression Quest was the first game that I played that really gave me a taste of that. Oh. Um, where it's just you're the you're the character, but the thing I found that was probably the most powerful thing about that, at least for me, it, it's up to interpretation, was the oh hey here's the options of things you could say, but based on what your depression level is, you can't even select these and. It's similar to, I guess, Night in the Woods, where you want to say one thing, you say something different. Um, but I thought it was really powerful to see, oh, this is definitely the, quote, right answer to this. This is the way to win the game. But I can't pick it because the game says I'm not able to at this point. Um, and I, I thought that was a really interesting storytelling method. Um, on the flip yeah, side, I, completely... I oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was, I was agreeing, but... Uh... I was going to I was going to add just as someone who has uh, struggled with like depression, more specifically anxiety, like that kind of thing of like knowing what the right answer is and still not being able to do it, I think is a really uh, powerful thing. Yeah, one the one thing that kind of because uh, I also kind of uh, have some depression and sort of thing in the it's nothing too, too major, I guess. But the thing that was difficult for me that kind of this game helped or, or exacerbated, I'm not sure, was uh, also <laughs> I was falling asleep at work, and I guess it's a personal story, but why not share it with the world? Um, so I was kind of falling asleep at work, mostly because I was, like, tired and staying up too late. Like, not really doing anything bad, but just not getting sleep. So I was falling asleep at work, and my boss was like, hey, uh, you better get your act together, or you're going to have to, like, not be here. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I'll, I'll go to the doctor and try to see if anything's wrong. I should have just been sleeping. So the doctor's like, hey, uh, you gotta, you, we should put you on an Aji medicine also, here's a survey that was kind of kind of looking for depression. So the practitioner said, "Are you depressed?" And I'm like, "I I don't I don't know I don't know how to answer that question," um, because nobody wants to be that person who 
over exaggerates their condition but no one wants to be that person who underestimates their condition when they really should ask for help um and i'm like well i don't think anything's wrong but i don't want to act like i'm too tough to try this sort of thing and mm-hmm. then I, I expressed this to them and they said how about we try on this small dosage and see what happens um and i'm taking a little bit along with this allergy medicine i'm sleeping better and literally everybody around me is telling me how much more pleasant and happy i seem and just more <laughs> um not fake that's like great. not unlike myself but just kind of hey you don't seem to have like a hair trigger with anger on like small little insignificant things and you know i guess i, I recognize it more when i lap laps on that medicine is that hmm. oh i think there's kind of like not like serious clinical depression but definitely a, a, a difference um and that game just kind of put me in a way where i'm just having those kind of things on my mind to if that might be reflective of what the experience is like, is that you might have one answer in your head and you got to try to think of, well, what's the healthy thing for me to do, whether or not I feel like saying it. That's just my, my personal story that kind of sure. that narrative style put me in space to think about mm-hmm. for what it's worth. <laughs> and it'll be uh, different for anybody else. And it's kind of awkward to transition out of that story. <laughs> Um, no, so, but I mean, oh, go sorry, go ahead, Steph. Oh, no, I was, just, I, was, I was going to attempt to transition away from that. So if you had something on, <laughs> on topic. No, uh, go ahead. Uh, just curious what you want to ask. Oh, no, I was just, uh, um, I'm more of a comics person than a game person. So I was just going to ask, um, do you write or write your own comics or just illustrate? Or can you talk about some of the comics projects you've been involved in? Sure. Um, so right now I'm living in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've been living in Portland for... About three years now, I originally came at the end of 2013, shortly after I graduated college. Um, and I actually originally came out to Portland for a comics internship. Oh, cool. uh, so a lot of comics, comics was actually Portland. Yeah, and people. that was that was actually what I came to intern for. I was interning for a place called uh, it was called Periscope Studio at the time. It's now called Helioscope. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a shared studio space with a variety of artists working in comics uh, field. Uh, so these are folks uh, who are working for uh, large studios, small studios, working independently, mix of everything. Um, but these were folks that I uh, stayed with for about four months, uh, kind of peeking over their shoulders and uh, taking up a little bit of studio space to work on uh, short stories and other comics projects to try and hone my skills. Um, so comics is actually a main thing that I actually had stuck with for a long time before doing game design. And that was partly partly because uh, like I, I just really have a lot of passion for storytelling, uh, you know, as much as I do for game design, I, I love the intersection of those. Um, but as far as comics goes, specific projects, uh, the one that's been sort of my long-running one is this action comedy comic called Stardust Slammers, which is my roller derby Magical Girls action comic. That sounds so up my alley. <laughs> yeah. I know what I will be checking out tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> Uh, thank you. So um, that I started on uh, a couple years back, and it's been sign of a side project for me that I uh, work on a little bit in between these games. So I had the uh, first chapter completed, and uh, actually while I was working on pitching that to a company, I actually started making the first prototype of what would eventually be the first Tiny Swords game. Uh, so that was supposed to be like my little side project while I tried to figure out what to do with this comic, and then uh, that comic, uh, the pitch got rejected and the game took off, so I kind of switched priorities. Um, but it's just this thing where uh, I really enjoy kind of playing with oddball concepts and uh, writing and drawing uh, just because I'm uh, very much like 
uh, like I'm, I'm very proud of like kind of trying to do everything. Uh, so mm -hmm. like all my game designs, I do literally everything, the game design rules, manual packaging, uh, everything. Um, same thing with comics where, you know, and because, you know, the medium is relatively inexpensive as far as production goes, just time really, uh, it's a little bit more feasible for me to do that than if say I was making an entire like movie or video game by myself. Yeah, there's a lot of other production costs involved with that that are beyond just the actual creation of the thing. We can't all be M. Strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say, so Magical Girls, like Roller Derby, mm -hmm. you kind of have, it seems like you kind of have sort of eclectic tastes. Were you like a, besides games and that kind of thing, were you into other nerdy things growing up or was it kind of late? blooming for you definitely although uh, it's i kind of had a roundabout uh trip with comics i think compared to other folks um so you know like because I, I actually did a i did an interview project actually when i was in college and this is actually how i found out about periscope studio um and this was part of this interview project i was traveling across the country and interviewing comics artists about how they got into comics and kind of their general path i was kind of trying to do a uh, ethnographic uh, generational study um, and one of the things that I saw was uh, this sort of like very common path for artists in that age range of you know you grow up reading Calvin and Hobbes or like other like gag strips and then move up to like superhero comics and then like web comics and manga and maybe like uh, or like or like indie American comics and then getting into like manga and web comics and for me it was almost a complete opposite where I started out with like Calvin and Hobbes and Farside and Blue uh, Bloom County and Doonesbury because my parents had all those but my parents also had a copy a volume of Raw Magazine which uh, I don't know if either of you are familiar with that uh, Raw I'm not. Magazine? No. So Raw Magazine was an anthology in I want to say 1980s um, but it's most famous for serializing uh, Mouse, A Survivor's Tale Oh okay and uh, that particular comic too has a special significance, at least for me, because I was raised Jewish. Um, so I was sometime in middle school when I discovered this comic and this book that was full of these like super graphic like indie comics uh, and this mouse book. You know, we were talking actually about uh, the Holocaust and World War II in my Hebrew school because that was actually a big part of our education, mm -hmm. um, less so on religious teachings and more about uh, what sort of the cultural and political context of Judaism. Uh, and so, you know, I had this comic that was, this was a, an incredibly, like, interesting, compelling comic to me. Like, it was only, like, well, one chapter, but I really wanted to find more. And my rabbi, you know, I told my rabbi about this, and he was like, oh, yeah, we have actually got copies of that here on the shelves. Like, here, go ahead and take this back with you. Uh, <laughs> and that was sort of another light bulb uh, where I was like, oh, wow, you can make comics about that. You can tell stories in this way. Uh, and it was in my head, I like to put them side by side because they felt like they happened around the same time. Uh, but I was like a freshman or uh, like I was in sixth or seventh grade in middle school when Shonen Jump came to America. Um, mm -hmm. So at the same time that I was exposed to this world of American indie comics, uh, at the same time, like Shonen Jump came in and I was a super big fan of Shaman King, actually, because uh, we, in Hebrew school, we also had uh, comparative religions courses. So I was really obsessed with like world mythology and like uh, traditions from other religions. So, you know, a fighting comic that's all about that, where each character gets to represent a different religion uh, and mythology like is super compelling uh, i loved that kind of stuff and it was this really bright and poppy art 
and, and I think also part of it was that, you know, I liked some superhero stuff as a kid. Like I loved the Batman cartoons and uh, like the Spider-Man movies, but uh, getting into actual superhero comics was very difficult for me in a lot of ways. And I think also so intimidating. difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's in particularly in the 1990s. Like that was also an extremely difficult time if you weren't into uh, the kinds of comics that were available, because one, you had to get to a comic store, which weren't there weren't any near by me and they didn't have most of the comics that I was interested in sold at like a Kroger. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there were comics like that, if there were any superhero comics, then it was like super intense, gritty, dramatic, building on lots of history and lots and lots of like just a lot of stuff that was like very unappealing to me as a kid. Uh, but then at the same time, there was Shonen Jump, which was like bright and cartoony and funny and interesting. It was very easy to follow along uh, and had these like really novel concepts that like really stuck out to me. Uh, so it was the same time like that and New Type Magazine where they would just have these samples of like weird little titles that they thought about they were wanting to like bring over. So they were like, here's a sneak preview of a comic we want to bring over and it's a comic about cooking. And I was like, you can make a comic about that? Like, and they were like, here's a whole, here's a comic about soccer. I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, cause my parents were big into sports. They tried to get me into sports. Um, I still don't have a whole lot of I don't get a whole lot of watching uh, sports events, um, but I understand why people get into it. And and for me, like I get a lot more out of uh, sports manga actually. So, I was gonna say, yeah, like, like sports uh, anime, like there's so much like drama, and like the- yeah, that <laughs> that that human connection I think is like kind of part of it. You know, the presentation for sure, but like that emotional human connection for me is like really big part of it. So like mm-hmm. uh, like Yamushi Pedal, I was obsessed with for quite a while. Um, and, and that's actually part of why I created Starter Slammers was, uh, like I was wanting to make something that was like bright and goofy and colorful. Um, but I wanted some kind of hook and something, that, something that really had it stand apart from other comics of that sort. And at the same time, I was really getting into Steven Universe. This was, uh, in like 2015 <laughs> when, uh, the Sailor Moon Crystal anime was announced. So I was like, well, wow. you know, Magical Girls are kind of coming back. Maybe I could do something with that. Cause I liked watching Sailor Moon as a kid. I really like a lot of Magical Girl shows. Um, but again, like what could I do that would be different? And I was thinking about it and it was this thing where I had just this light bulb of like, you know, a lot of people that a lot of my friends are into roller derby and they're also into Magical Girls. Why not combine them? I'm because surprised. There's not more of that, actually. That that sounds perfect, actually. <laughs> um, there's there's a couple web comics, and and actually there are, um, there are there are a couple of comics that are roller derby, and you know there are more magical girl comics and like uh, like western like print comics. Um, mm. But it is a thing like you know the intersection of those uh, I haven't seen a whole lot yet. Um, but that's you know I'm I'm excited to like be feel like I'm a part of that where. Um, the popularity of like Yuri on Ice or like Yaomishi Petal or uh, like Haikyuu, which is a volleyball manga and anime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, all these different series have this like this huge growth. And like sports manga in Japan has this incredible tradition, like stretching back ages with like tons of series uh, that have run for decades on end. And, you know, it's, it's for me, like, I, I feel like there is a huge opportunity missed for American media where we don't really have anything like that. Uh, certainly nothing to the same quality uh, for sports cartoons or comics. Like a lot of the stuff that I feel like tends to happen, and this is true of my own, is that it ends up kind of meshing it with like superhero stuff and kind of there's ways to do it um, that I want to try and find a way that I can do that that makes it more interesting that still has a a thing that kind of like starts off superhero and kind of leans more into the sports tradition and like sports manga tropes as Mm -hmm. it goes on rather than vice versa. 
Um, but like, like I'm thinking of, um, God, there's this really kind of awful looking cartoon that was on Nickelodeon that was like, uh, Legends of the Legends of the End Zone or something. It's really, uh, really rings a bell. I can't yeah. remember, but that sounds so familiar. <laughs> it's like they have like these kids that are traveling to different stadiums, and there's something about crystals and guardians, and I think like they have like these mascots, yeah. and it's not. It was like, it's, it's really like so football. It was like a football show. Yeah, yeah, it was an NFL show. Um, but it was just one of those things where like. I love kind of weird concepts like that. It's just one of those things where like for me, it's the execution that matters. And uh, actually the other one that I really, that I do actually genuinely love that's been a big inspiration for me uh, is Sam Bosma's fantasy sports. Uh, Have you, have you read any of those? No, I haven't haven't heard of that. That's what's that? What's that one? Uh, So fantasy sports is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a high fantasy action comedy series where every kind of book that he's done, every book is kind of like 40 to 60 pages, I want to say, kind of like a a small size graphic novella, Um, but they're all different sports in these like high fantasy settings. So the first one, uh, they're they're always following this barbarian and his wizard, little wizard helper, Uh, and the two of them (laughs) are raiding this temple and this like mummy comes out and challenges them to a basketball game. (laughs) <laughs> so it's this mummy with like uh like brace ankle warmers and bracelets and has like a huge flat top and like it's it's incredibly funny like it is so good and like the second volume is like about volleyball and like this like town of mermen um the third one i think is golfing um but it's like building up this like fantasy universe uh where like the the life and death like struggles are represented through sports games and it like cares as much about the sports uh, like the techniques and the the strategy and play as it does like the fantasy building, which I think is really what differentiates, you know, a sports uh, style or sports centric comic from something that just has kind of like loose elements of sports. Sure. Which I think is an interesting kind of breaking down of the nerd jock dichotomy. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a, whew, there's, there's a lot of threads there. Uh, the one bef- before I get into the other point, uh, your magical girl roller derby reminds me of the idea that I've had brewing that I, I just want to see it is like, <laughs> like cheerleader thing. Y- yes, it is. So, uh, so cheerleaders that are like they have magical girl elements, but it's basically I was like, well, if cheerleaders can stack into pyramids, why couldn't they like magical girl that pyramid into like a giant mech and have mech battles? And I, I'm not sure why that hasn't been a thing, and Steph, you laugh, but I, I would watch the hell out of a show like that, is all I'm saying. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't oh, know that I would absolutely. watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch Slash and or read that, but, um, mm. you know, I, I think sports anime kind of have, I, I think the appeal of those is really, really what, um, like, American sports bro fans like about American sports, whether they realize it or not to some degree. Like granted, we all, um, we all love like an amazing catch or like a great play or something, you know. Like for instance, Odell Beckham Jr. has like this great one-handed catch that's just absurd. But only really diehard fans of him or his team will remember what game that was in. I don't really know what game because it didn't. I don't think that was like a a great story. But Pittsburgh and other cities always have like this one catch that they love from a game that was pretty good. But it just made that game so much better. It was like a game-winning play or something. And hmm. they'll be like, oh, yeah, man. So, Santonio Holmes, two toes, caught this ball, ran the end zone, and we won the Super Bowl. I'm like, well, that's why you remember that. It wasn't really that that athleticism was that. It was great. Don't get me wrong. But you're not remembering the raw athleticism. You're remembering where you were, how you felt to see that story unfold. And I think 
as much as people like to enjoy the jockey part of sports, I think it is really the stories that get people invested over so long of a time. Well, I think that's true even of like the sports fans. Like I, I feel like that emotional connection is like a big deal. Like even if it is as something as simple as like sort of a uh like a like a local pride, you know, like you were talking about with like Pittsburgh, you know, like we root for this team because it's our team. Like my mom is a huge Bengals fan, even though they lose all the time. And part <laughs> of it is that she loves that team because they lose all the time. Like she loves rooting for the underdog and it's like she has this strong emotional attachment to them because it's her team, you know? Um, and I think that is very much like a thing that is part of it. You know, yes, there are folks who, and, and I think, you know, it's a similar thing that like folks can appreciate like the athleticism and the talent on display. Um, and this is true of like any sport, you know, even the Olympics, but like really the things that people strongly connect with are like those human stories of like a player, like beating the odds and like, uh, going against the grain or like, you know, pulling off some impossible comeback, uh, and like any good sports story, you know, any good sports narrative, I think, has to kind of capitalize on both of those fronts, um, where, like, you are using this, like, feat of athleticism to uh, really tell these, like, super strongly emotional stakes. Yeah, in in that way, I kind of feel like any good sports story thematically is interchangeable with any action story or any romance story or comedy story, and this, like, the action might be different to you. You might prefer the comedian or the actress or the pro soccer player. But again, you're just rooting for the person to overcome some odds or to fulfill some story requirements. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's true a lot in the same way, like how a lot of sports like celebrities, you know, a lot of it is that eclectic personality. Like I don't think anybody would necessarily care as much about Michael Jordan if he wasn't, if he hadn't been as like entertaining of a person. Yeah, it's uh, you gotta have like that background too. Even um, people like Shaq who have like enduring fame despite the fact that they haven't been in necessarily anything relevant besides commercials in the longest time. Mm-hmm. I think they're it's their personalities that lets them endure. Um, you know, in the stories like you know why we get, um, I I feel like a personality and narrative are kind of why it took like Serena Williams's like greatness is just now being such a big thing. Because I don't think it, that she was ever not that great. You know what I mean? I don't think it's just recently that she became this powerhouse of a player. But the story just kind of became available to more people. Um, and I, I feel like that kind of cements your legacy once people kind of get the story that they... Whatever the narrative becomes, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. So there's I tons guess of great question... athletes that are terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, no one's going to um... tell the Big Ben story in 20 years. <laughs> Unless, you know, it becomes like, uh, you know, like the, the heel turn. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, and this is like very much like my uh, my housemates are very much into wrestling and that the same thing is the case. Like, you know, the, the athleticism is secondary to the personalities on display. And, you know, that like wrestling really gets is like heightening the drama, like going full on ham with it and just like getting up and close and personal and doing like all kinds of fun stuff with it like uh, I was watching a, a match with them and there was this like wonderful tag team that I was watching where uh these two guys were like best buds and like one of them like because they had like cheated on a bunch of other matches they had to like uh like they had to take a penalty on one of them had to be like locked up in this cage and was like hung over the <laughs> ring and as he was like put in the cage and he was like being slowly lifted up he was like screaming and putting his hand out of the bars and his vest bow bro was like reaching up and screaming after him like 
I had never seen any other match with them, but I was like already invested in the two of them just because like they sold it so well. And uh, <laughs> and, and this is like the same thing where like you know, and I, I think that's part of the the enduring like the enduring appeal and even like the uh, returning appeal of wrestling because I've noticed like the last couple of years that like wrestling has definitely become more popular with uh, my friends, especially uh, the J Pro Press wrestling. Yeah, I, I have noticed the resurgence, and I, I wonder where that came from. Um, maybe it was John Cena, who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> he I, I was in, like... I think, one of the best Scooby-Doo movies. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Second only, uh, actually, this this goes back to uh, the Magical Girls. Did you see the, uh, the Scooby-Doo Kiss movie? What? N- no, I... I don't... I haven't seen that one. It just reminds me of like that episode of Family Guy where Kiss saves Christmas. But um, no, I haven't seen the Scooby Doo and Kiss. Is that one of the more recent ones, or it was? It is fairly recent, like you know, within like the last five, five, ten years or something. But more importantly, the the absolute best part of that is that they do a magical transformation sequence for the Kiss uh, rock stars. That is straight <laughs> up a Sailor Moon homage, like same poses and backgrounds and everything. Like it is a deliberate. Like, I have no idea whose idea that was, but it's amazing. And, like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was their idea because, like, a, a couple of years ago, Kiss did a uh, collaboration with, I think it was Momo or Momoyuro Z, Clover Z, I think. It's a, a Japanese uh, band, um, but they did this, like, ridiculous, uh, like, music video collaboration song with them where they like have this like back and forth of like doing like kind of classic like kiss metal style and like kind of like more energetic like j-pop guitar <laughs> and, like they like have like the the japanese uh like there's like a girl idol group kind of looking uh but they have like these like really gorgeous kimonos and they have like animated bit from uh sushio who is one of the main animators from uh kill a kill or like any of the um like she's like a, a they're like a Gainax style animation if you've seen any of like they're super uh, exaggerated kind of style so it's gorgeous to look at um and then they kind of like go back and forth where like kiss or like these like demonic looking dudes like they're just like they're hamming it up so much but it's like you know i would not be surprised if like kiss was just secret weeaboos <laughs> i mean if you look at like the face paint and stuff that they were doing like that wouldn't even remotely surprised me <laughs> we need to that just makes me think we need a, a it's such a tangent to get there but we need like a, a three-way <laughs> collaboration between like death clock from metalocalypse the gorillas mm-hmm. and then uh hatsune miku like just all these virtual bands oh. just coming together for oh. like and then the squid sisters from splatoon because they're also a virtual yes. band fight me but um, <laughs> i mean are they not like i don't know who would argue that i i, I think they're broken up um are they? well you the, know they, at least the for the, the, the second, second game, game. <laughs> we, we don't know how the story's gonna go like i'm, I'm holding yeah, true, i'm crossing true. my fingers uh, uh callie marie need to need, they need to still be <laughs> friends yeah th- that the last Splatfest was actually like a canon story element really? which was <laughs> yeah and and apparently Marie beating Callie at least has had some tension added to their team up, which is oh, a ridiculous no. meta thing that Nintendo is normally <laughs> such a, our fans don't know anything to let's take their choice and make it 100% the next plot of our next game. But like that four way band, those four bands would just be the openers to the greatest digital band of all time. <laughs> so actually that stuff reminds me, um, Oh my goodness. Have you ever heard of Maximum the Hormone? Uh, 
No. Okay, so if you're looking for like an idea of what that might sound like, um, so Maximum the Hormone is a Japanese band, and it's kind of what you get when you get, uh, basically when you get a guitarist who is super into Red Hot Chili Peppers, a vocalist that's into death metal, and a drummer that's into J-pop. <laughs> and they are so all playing amazing. at the same time. And it just switches between any of those styles like in a split second. Like, it is like ecstatically wonderful because like the drummer is like this like uh like uh this lady with like this like very like kind of cutesy like kind of typical uh like j-pop kind of voice and then like they've got this other dude who's like kind of like up like the raw like kind of growling kind of thing uh so like switch back and forth they'll have like slap bass kind of stuff going on at the same time uh like and they'll like switch between like it just it's it's just super eclectic and delightful like i could easily see like this like death clock gorillas Hatsune Miku kind of thing, like having the same kind of vibe. Like I really would love to see this happen. I just I just looked up their picture real fast. It looks this looks one hundred percent like whatever you would imagine it to look like is exactly what it looks like. <laughs> uh, I think some of these like all these digital bands that would eventually lead to this, they owe all their, their roots to the beats from Doug back on Nickelodeon. <laughs> I think it goes further than that. It, uh, you know, because uh, the Archies actually had pop hits. They had top chart uh, stories. Oh, for... hmm. Like, uh, yeah, no joke. Like, uh, the Archies were, uh, they, they were genuine pop stars. Their uh, song Sugar Sugar was, like, a top hit for, like, a long time in the 60s, I think. The Archies, like, from Archie Comics, like? Yeah. Oh. No, they were a super, they were a real band. I did not know that. That's <laughs> well. I mean, they recorded actual music. Obviously, they well, weren't right, a real right. thing before the comics. But yeah, like, see, now that's that's a question though. Is like, can we throw the Archies back into that? Can can we like make this a four way? Mm. Time travel might be involved in the animated half of High High Puffy on the Yumi. <laughs> Well, um, the, the, the Archies are coming back too, though. Like, um, I don't know if you've been following any of the new stuff with Riverdale or uh, like the uh, the newer Archie comics, but you know they have a new they have a new Archies band that's going to be uh, out there. So like, it's oh, wow. entirely plausible. Uh, Not to mention Josie and the Pussycats. They've they've been around for ages and they're still there. Yeah. <laughs> Can't forget about Gem and the Holograms. <laughs> also very true. The old Gem and the Holograms, not the. One from a couple years back. Not the TV show. Oh god, no, the movie the is movie. trash, but... Oh god, <laughs> movie is trash. Actually, have you seen... Uh, I still need to read the comics, but have you seen the comics? I have not. I um, I, I never watched it as a kid, so I didn't have like the nostalgia factor mm. to pick it up. But I've heard like only good things about it. Yeah, it's the same thing for me. I, I wasn't super into a lot of 80s cartoons. So I don't have the same nostalgia appeal either, but um, Sophie Campbell has and the other folks working on this have as far as I can see, been doing a fantastic job with it. Like, they've been doing some really cool updates of the costumes and designs. Like, they're still, like, ridiculous. Uh, what's the phrase? Totally outrageous. Um, but, <laughs> like, updating them for, like, contemporary fashions and styles, which I think is really anything that has that kind of, like, hipness to itself, like, is kind of a necessity. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think one of my favorite examples of that is, like, how folks have been talking about how uh, the Sonic Twitter is probably the best update of Sonic like as far as like a character that has like you know has an attitude like of course like sonic would be a meme loving fuck <laughs> yes, he w- yes he would and all his fans are i can speak this is prime example number one um 
I'm the sonic correspondent for the blog I write for. I feel like <laughs> Steph, you should, you should let me get that title. Correspondence. They're like serious mm. air quotes. <laughs> nice. I um, mean, you got to put that on your resume, right? Like, you know, like have that like top billing. Like, <laughs> that's the main thing. That's my main qualification. <laughs> you got to have that I, as like a CNN news ticker, like at, at the bottom, like every time you show up. Yeah, like like on the Daily Show, like we're joined here with a. Uh, Brother Dom, Sonic Correspondent. Hello. Here's my segment, Gotta Go Fast. I get in, I get out. Um, but I, I think it is, you know, and it's it's funny how this all does relate back to story. Um, hmm. Humans are Sonic's... obsessed with stories, you know? Like, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing, like, it's unavoidable as far as, like, the human condition. Like, I mean, in the sense that, like, human brains are, like, super trained to look for stories, too. Yeah, like, we, we want to have a reason for the Sonic Twitter to be good in 2017, despite the fact that, yes, there's been some good to acceptable to even pretty good games that came out in the last six years, mostly generations and the handheld stuff. But we want to, we kind of want to justify why would this Twitter be relevant and decent in this year when it's most known for what happened 11 years ago in 06 with that horrible game. And <laughs> the, the story beats just want to make it seem like, oh, yeah, Sonic and the whole brand realizes what a joke it was and there's still a fandom there for i can go into like a million reasons why people resonate with the series but that's there for a reason so what would that be updated and well you can't be like the totally radical bad dude from the 90s and in the 2010s that doesn't that's not what the cool thing is like what's what's the cool thing now snarky flippant meme lover that's <laughs> and that's how you get smug anime wendy's girl <laughs> that's oh, like what the world does now and it's you know it's just find a story anywhere it's you know so yeah i that is one of the best twitters you are <laughs> totally making fans on this show today <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah that was also one of sonic was also produced archie comics so or was in archie that was, archie handled those comics so that was yeah archie still does the so. sonic comics yeah, they're pretty good. Do some good crossovers. The art's amazing, and um, yeah, especially any of Tyson Hess's stuff. Like he is a fantastic illustrator. You know, I do, I do this. This kind of leads me back into some some questions. So I wrote a post before, um, kind of talking about how the story of Sonic is far better in comics than it is in video games, just because you can kind of segregate the story and gameplay a little bit more. And you can actually take time to have conversations, whereas in the game, if there's be blazing forward or right, um, do you find any, I guess, adaptational differences between like, I don't know, like if let's you work with comics and with board games, so mm-hmm. how do you kind of shift gears between those story mindsets? I guess you don't really adapt them back and forth, but they're kind of different. Yeah, although that is actually something I'm, I'm really interested in for the long term. Uh, so that is actually a thing that I'm really invested in as far as, uh, you know, my own personal work that I really do actually want to be able to cross over stuff. In, part, in fact, part of the reason uh, that for Tiny Swords I made these little Tiny Sword Fighters was so that I could have these characters to make comics of because I miss doing comics and I wanted any excuse that I could to, like, make stories. So I was like, well... You know, like, this is a really, you know, it's a simple card game, it's a simple, like, kind of setup, but, you know, that would just allow me to come up with a bunch of, like, really silly slapstick sword fights. Um, You know, just, (laughs) not everything has to be, like, an incredible epic, so it's been this thing where I've actually been kind of 
plotting out these like comics kind of loosely inspired by the tiny swords kind of aesthetic that I've been working on. Uh, kind of an aesthetic that I like to brand as a queer Toriyama, just making like <laughs> Dragon Ball style like goofy action comedy, but like explicitly queer characters and that's my like... favorite thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. I am too obsessed with puns. That's amazing. <laughs> Don loves puns it took so me... much. <laughs> it kind of just slid by. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best puns, though. Like, anything that, like, I can just, like, slip by somebody and they, like, have to, like, take, take half take. a second to, like, go, wait. Oh, you. You, I can't <laughs> believe you just did that. Um, so, and, and likewise, like, I've actually had a draft of uh, some tabletop games inspired by Stardust Slammers uh, for a while now. That's something that I've actually really wanted to explore as a, a more complicated game later on as, uh, you know, playing around with some different ideas. And it, part of it is for me because of this like constant bouncing back and forth between media and because also because of theater, it's uh, there's a lot I think of overlap in the way that I think about stories and games uh, in so much that like, you know, in, in a very, this is a, maybe sound a little reductive or broad, um, but in, you know, theater, there's this idea of storytelling where you have uh, a character that wants a thing, they have a goal, and they set out to achieve that, and they encounter obstacles, and that's sort of the basis of like typical conflict-based storytelling. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I always like to put that uh, like cl- disclaimer on there because storytelling does not inherently need conflict. It's really common. It's very easy to set up because it makes exciting drama, but it's not necessary. Um, which is why, particularly, I'm. Uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but this is why I love like uh, like four act structure, which. Uh, is a commonality in Japanese media that allows for interesting storytelling that doesn't necessarily need conflict in a typical sense. Um, going like one of my favorite comics is this thing called the Yokohama Shopping Trip, which is this uh, rural post-apocalyptic pastoral slice of life comic. No conflict, no not even an explanation of like why the world is what as it is. It's the twilight of humanity, but this android is like taking care of a cafe. But basically, nothing happens. But it's also like extremely like charming and captivating and interesting. But going back, um, there's this idea in, in typical storytelling of you know a character and a conflict and uh, basically they either achieve that goal by the end of the story or they don't, uh, or they achieve it and something else happens. Um, and in the same way, you know, a game has a player, they have a character who has a goal, uh, you know, uh, whether that is a win condition or a loss condition or something, and they encounter obstacles on the way that prevent them from achieving that goal. Uh, and by the end, by the time they stop playing, they've either achieved that goal or not. And so for me, there's a lot of interesting ways that game design can be used to basically funnel uh, players into specific kinds of narratives to influence them so that you're not like trying to create the same exact experience each time, but you're creating sort of a palette, a range of possible choices and designs that create a possible range of stories. So while you're not able to predict every single possible action or reaction, you have this sort of range of emotion that comes out of the game. Uh, you know, the, the example that I love using as this is uh, Dwarf Fortress, um, which is, uh, is a game about these, you know, creating your own little colony of dwarves, and you have your little mine, and you're trying to survive, and it's all presented in this, like, very basic text, but that's because these two brothers we've been working on have been uh, simulating 
everything like i mean to the point that like you know they're they had uh the whole story of this is a thing that i love actually is their story about uh they had these cats that were just barfing up out of nowhere and they weren't sure why and they started like kind of trying to like detective work and backtrack and they discovered that they had a bug where uh characters can get liquid stuck to their feet um and because of the way that they had and that was actually intentional the bug was that cats and like other animals like when they step on objects they automatically eat them so the cats were immediately eating any wine that was spilt on the ground and then immediately getting drunk because they weren't supposed to be drinking so they would drink and then they would barf so these cats were barfing everywhere because they were stepping in wine like it was you know incredibly bizarre but it was it creates all kinds of these interesting stories because of the conditions that uh the game world creates and like everybody has those kinds of stories for whatever game they love playing you know like uh, super smash brothers being uh this like particular example that i love using like everybody has their like smash story like my personal favorite uh was i was playing a eight player match in uh one of the like the kirby stage i think that that like one of those giant stages from the wii u version and it's too much in that stage (laughs) right so everybody else was like dying off and uh like it's the one that has like the little caverns and there's like ricochet uh like stuff like there's like lava on the wall so it's very easy to like uh get hit on those and i was playing olimar on this little remote so i don't even have like full control over my character i'm not a pro player but i'm playing against this other uh person a friend of mine who is a pro smash player playing marth (laughs) and has like a real controller and i am just running for my life and grabbing because we had (laughs) items uh, because well, it was my birthday, so I insisted that we play with items because that's how I like to play with Smash. Um, that's a good way to play. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, so we had uh, like this like pow block that I was grabbing and running, and I'm just like trying to do anything I can to like evade because it's just us left. And so I throw this block down uh, just in the hopes that it'll do something, and it shakes the whole stage, and it just hits at just the right time uh, that my friend's character gets launched right into lava ricochets and basically bounces back and forth between the ground and the floor five times before she like careens off the stage with 500 (laughs) percent damage and i just barely win the match that's a that that, that's a story that if you wrote it people would say that's a little cliche but when it happens in (laughs) real life like that's amazing this is what i wanted to happen Right, but the, that's the thing that I think is interesting is that the basically the design decisions of Super Smash Brothers create specific kinds of stories, and that generates uh, the the kind of experience that you get from it. So you know, like in the same way, like comparing the difference between you know, like the sort of the competitive smash, right? The idea of like final destination, no items, uh, like Fox only or whatever, like that creates a very (laughs) different kind of atmosphere, different tension and story style that you essentially get different kinds of stories that are told out of that because you have completely different conditions. Whereas something like the items and the stage design and all these different characters were careening, you know, it creates this like incredibly chaotic slapstick, uh, like, way of uh like telling stories in the same way you know the more people you add in the more inevitably like that kind of unpredictability like changes how the narrative uh like is shaped and you know this is a thing that i find really interesting as a means and it's it is different from kind of the way that most people talk about story design in games because usually we're talking about it in the traditional expected way of static media we're talking about we're talking about like cutscenes. we're talking about character arcs and plot motivations and dialogue and voiceovers and uh, music and camera shots like the things that we're borrowing from other media Um, but the design of games themselves can also be narrative tools and i think that's something that as designers 
uh, in tabletop and in video games, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to explore and uh, be conscious of. Like, there's a lot of things that we're discovering kind of by accident and, like, finding uh, as ways to, like, make things work. And, and board games, I think, actually do a better job of that, have been exploring it for a longer time. So they have a lot of things that really fascinate me and things that I think could honestly uh, stand to be drawn from uh, board games into video games. Like in uh, board games, a lot of board games have this uh, trader element that was really popular for a while. Like, um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, like the resistance or I think it's Knights of yeah. Avalon is, is what it's called, you know, where you have like six players, but one of them is secretly a spy and you're trying oh, to figure out like who's the rat. So much. <laughs> right? And out, it creates like, this like days and great, days. great tension um, but there's no, you know, video games like that, you know, like, even though that's an incredibly popular mechanic, it's like really exciting and different. Um, but you don't see that many video games that explore that kind of territory. So there's this whole field of mechanics and incorporation, like, that you could play around with. Like, you know, imagine like a, uh, a Counter-Strike or Team Fortress 2, but one of the players was actually trying to sabotage your game. And you had to figure out like who it was and everybody had to vote to kick them out, like every like you know, at the end of every round or something. So you had to, like, figure out, like, who you could actually trust to stay in the match. That, that would be pretty interesting to add some, I guess, uh, organic gameplay elements to the mechanics, to, to story elements to the mechanics, I guess is the way to put it. Social, I think, is a really good way of putting it, too, because yes. the appeal of it is, you know, the, the real appeal of those kinds of games is that tension of, like, arguing with people and, like, trying to read uh, their emotions and trying to figure out, like, okay, I know that you're, like, looking at me, but are you trying to, like, look at me so that I think you're overreacting and that I won't suspect you? But do you know that? And, you know, it's this, this like, double trouble blind bluff, uh, you know, that thing, uh, where, like, I know that you know that I know that you know. You know th those <laughs> kinds of, like, th those kinds of head games that people get into, like, I think are excellent and super interesting. And yeah, uh, I think that's why know, people love, like, professional poker and all that kind of thing, because it's not that poker is this inherently taxing game to play with your hands but like in your head it's trying to figure out like the bluffs and all that trying to like there's it's so tense it's even mm. funny when you watch the broadcast we know what all the players have but they don't so there's that added tension of okay that guy's very clearly bluffing is he going to get away with it or not and that guy knows that whenever he winks he knows he's bluffing or is he pretending to like use his own call so it's kind of fun Right. And, uh, you know, and that right there is just a classic use of dramatic irony. Like that is a classic literary technique, but in an interactive form, you know, and again, a lot of board games have this kind of interplay of hidden information and video games have this to a certain extent as well, you know, that there is really uh, a lot of information that just can't be known by other players, especially when you're playing against other people because you can't predict what they're going to do. Um, but like there, there's a lot of capability, I think, for that, and and actually, this is just another another kind of bouncing back and forth that I really like. Are you familiar at all with uh, Nobuyuki Fukumoto? Ooh, no, I'm out of my depth on that for sure. Do you know that stuff? Mm -mm. Well, maybe. So, contact. Uh, so, Fuku <laughs> <laughs> so Fukumoto was uh, is a uh, comics artist. Uh, he's a manga artist, um, best known for uh, two series really, uh, which is Akagi and Kaiji. Um, and both of them, his, his whole thing with all of his series is basically gambling dramas. So Akagi <laughs> is majorly about Mahjong. Uh, Kaiji kind of just has any kind of like weird, like gambling high stakes drama. Like uh, the first arc, which actually was part of what inspired Tiny Swords, is this uh, thing that they call like limited rock, paper, scissors, where uh, Kaiji is like, 
basically thrown on this boat by these like strange dudes in black suits and he's told like okay you have this set of rock paper scissors cards you have to use them win or lose you have to get rid of all these cards legally by the end of the tournament by sunrise or else you'll be shipped off to like work as a slave forever otherwise if you survive then you get to go home debt free uh like he's he and all these other people are like gamblers that are like millions of dollars in debt so they have like this like personal stake in the game but the game itself is just rock paper scissors but with these cards and the thing that's interesting to me about that particular series is that they never cheat it like they never like like have a trap card or a trick card um and and this is just a side note because i want to come back to it actually is that Yu-Gi-Oh and like hikaru nogo they were directly inspired by fukumoto they are he is the reason that those shows exist The, the Yu-Gi-Oh! comics, like, if you've never had a chance to read them, are amazing. Like, uh, before they even get into any of, like, the uh, the uh, the Shadow... No, well, not the Shadow Games. The Shadow Games are always there. But the Shadow Games from the beginning of the series, they're they're not played just with cards. They're played with knives and fire. Yes. I've read the first <laughs> couple. They're, like, really wild. Like... They're so good. They're I love them so so much. Uh, and that was like another comic that I loved reading as a kid because it was again the thing of like, wow, you can really make a comic about anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but Fukumoto like was interesting to me because it sort of highlights for me the inherent like uh, interconnection intersection of storytelling and game design. Where in an ideal scenario, the design that you create creates the kinds of stories, uh, compelling stories that you are wanting people to walk away with. So whether that is presented in extremely specific linear fashion, like a Walking Dead or uh, you know, a Night in the Woods, or even like a Legend of Zelda or something where you have a set cutscenes beginning to end, or you know, on the flip side, you have something that is completely abstract, completely removed from uh, any narrative context, you know, a Tetris or something, or you know, Candy Crush Saga, like nobody is there a story to Candy Crush Saga? Who knows? Who cares? That's not why you're playing. <laughs> but the, de- the narrative designs, the designs of that game create a specific kind of narrative that compels people and uh, like gives them an emotional attachment that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. Um, and this is something that's interesting to me to come from both angles of like, when I am like designing a game, you know, I think about like, okay, well, what kinds of choices are people going to make and what kinds of results, what kind of emotions will create from that? Uh, so with like Tiny Swords Smash, you know, what ended up being the key thing was I want a sort of frantic, uh, fast paced strategy game. So the choices need to be simple. They need to have clear stakes. Uh, they need to have uh, like just a few set options that you're working with, uh, and they need to have dramatic consequences, uh, such that you can't even necessarily predict like four moves ahead because one player's actions can completely throw off the entire thing. And you know what creates this slapstick feel is the fact that these like different actions cause these incredible like chain reactions. Like during the game, you know uh, your players are moving tiles and they can push all the tiles in their way. You know th- unless any of those are face down, there's nothing stopping you from pushing like seven tiles in a row. So you push seven tiles in a row, or you like hit like one tile and they get knocked into like seven others, and all <laughs> eight of those go flying. And the more times you hit somebody Huge just effect. like in Smash, they get uh, pushed further and further away. So you get that same kind of slapstick effect where like the, the stakes increase in real time, you know, like as you're getting hit for more and more, like your character has the option of either retreating, which de-escalates, but also limits your options or continuing to fight, which causes this character like, you know, there's no limit to those tokens. So like I've had games where players just for fun tried to see how many tokens they could stack on top of the character. And <laughs> I, I think the record was broken finally like two weeks ago. 
um, and the record was uh, actually. I, I want to give you a guess. Like, uh, how many? How many do you think was the high score? Eleven. All right, and uh, Steph, <laughs> what's your guess? Uh, fifteen. Steph is actually correct. It was fifteen. Oh, hey. Uh, so 15 <laughs> tokens right and uh even playing on that tablecloth that i have which is uh well over i think it's like three feet or so you know 15 spaces is a huge uh huge thing so like being able to chuck <laughs> one piece and send everything in its path flying 15 spaces is you know extremely rare of an occasion but it is it is a thing like people just like they they die laughing from it like it's <laughs> a thing that makes the game for them you know and that is like a big part of that you know and that's a thing that you know whether that you know it is a thing that like kind of crept into design that i kind of stumbled backwards into it but it's still like a design choice that i wanted to focus on and hone uh and you know whether that makes sense for every game that i do you know is secondary to what makes the most sense for this game you know another game like if i want like an increased tension or even you know on the opposite end you know a lot of stories are about increasing tension and conflict but you know not all stories have to have that some can be pleasant and calm and tranquil <laughs> or uh, you know moody uh, so in the same way game design decisions can also create narratives that fit that same kind of emotional atmosphere very nice i feel like that's kind of kind of puts the big bow on everything <laughs> kind of brings it all back around i'm def i definitely want to try this game out like this sounds really it sounds like a lot of fun and you know the, the gameplay of course sounds good but then the aesthetic of it is i'm totally like in love with the, the like the cutesy kind of art with the swords and the the four different types so whew, it seems pretty good <laughs> cool thank you i've been yeah, working yeah. on uh that particular game since well, basically January of 2016 is when I started. Um, I was actually working on a bunch of different prototypes, but I kind of focused on uh, what would become Tiny Sword Smash around like March. So it's been a little over a year now that I've been working on this game full time. Very cool. So yeah, I, I hope uh, I hope it is paying off. And I'm guessing with all that effort, you will have a product that is enjoyable. And if nothing else, very quality, maybe. <laughs> well, folks have been really enjoying my playtests, and you know, the at this point, uh, we'll we'll see very shortly uh, how that goes. But I'm I'm very proud of what I've gotten to make, and I hope uh, I get to keep making stuff. Cool. Well, I hope with uh, all your design philosophy and thoughts on games and story, I I also hope you get to keep on making things because, you know, it's it's not every day that I think we get to talk to somebody who has. I guess such a positive outlook on their creations and it's not too cynical or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, definitely illuminating to hear these kind of things. It's it's inspiring not to uh, butter your bread too much, but it is definitely... <laughs> <laughs> you definitely have a pleasant outlook on things. So that's always one of the uh, concepts that really puts a smile on my face and you know kind of brings joy to the games that I play and the stories that I consume, so... Um, yeah, Any anything else? Staff, do you have anything else? No, I, I think I'm all set. This has been great talking to you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so, so much, Brian, for coming on the show. We're going to have to have you on again sometime because there's so many, I feel like we went down so many paths that we could have really doubled back on and, you know, just coming up with different concepts, even, even sports talk and Pittsburgh talk and good old 
Appalachian Rust Belt talk is always an option. <laughs> I, I don't know how much I can offer for uh, all of those, although I do have a cousin who lives in Pittsburgh. That's, I think, the most uh, Pittsburgh talk that I could offer. Um, but I am really curious to see uh, what your thoughts are about Night in the Woods, uh, especially as somebody from that era. Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to check it out, you know, because I thought it was based on a similar Rust Belt town, but if they have the smelters, then it's 100% just rural Pittsburgh. So <laughs> I'll have to... You know, get a nice uh, cup of tea with uh, only a single shot of whiskey in it and sit down and just knock that on in one day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Brian, if people want to see more of your stuff or find you on the internet and kind of keep up with the Tiny Swords world and uh, the magical girls of the Roller Derby, where would they they go to check you out? So uh, the best place that they could go to is uh, my website, brianwolfstuff.com. Uh, That's my new hub for basically everything I do. So that has all of my games, my prototypes, my design blogs, my comics. It's brand new, so I'll be adding stuff as I go along. Uh, Besides that, my Twitter is also Brian Wolf Stuff. uh, And my Patreon is actually a way that you can get sort of a behind-the-scenes glance. And that's patreon.com slash Brian Wolf. Very, very nice. And um, this is kind of inside baseball, and you're hearing it live, listeners. Um depending on when our schedule gets kicked back into gear once we kick up season two brian we will either do some kind of link or maybe uh invite you back for something depending on when this episode will drop um so if it is still in the future you should all go check out the kickstarter for tiny sword smash and if it's in the past let's hope it did well and i hope you support it (laughs) (laughs) um but in the meantime, Steph, would you like to tell the people where they might be able to find us if they love our smooth, buttery voices? Yeah, I can do that. So um, if you want to find Dom on the internet anywhere, you can find him at Brother Dom with the A in the middle, not a hard E-R. Uh, you can find me at the Snowpier on Tumblr, uh, at Captain Steph on Twitter. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Character Rev. It's two R's in the middle, Character R-E-V. Um, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Character Reveal. Um, you can follow our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, um, anywhere you get podcasts, we're there. Um, you can read words Dom and I write about things um, on the Lady Geek Girl and Friends blog, which is ladygeekgirl.wordpress.com. And, so good. Yeah, and you can also listen to the podcast just by going straight to our simplecast page which is character reveal.simplecast.fm that's all of our good stuff we're essentially like the coolest kids on the block right now <laughs> you know we're, sure. we're doing hot things right now <laughs> go check us out uh, send some support our way if you can and we want to extend another huge huge thanks to brian you know thank you so much for spending some time with us and chit-chatting about game stories and all the like awesome um, thank you so much for having me on it was great yeah. talking with you both. Yeah. Thanks. You you as well. And uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Characterville. And until next time, see you later. <laughs>